Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So I know we're not in a skiff, but if we were recording a podcast in a skiff, that would be very on point today. It would. Apparently, the sergeant of arms has arrived. Really? At our, at our studio? Oh, no, you mean on the hill. <laughs> the actual skiff. Republican congressman gone wild. <laughs> Storming the skiff. <clears throat> this is like the Brooks Brothers riot. Just to make clear to people, like, they're sitting in a conference room eating pizza. Like, that's <laughs> literally what's happening. But they've brought recording devices into a secure facility. the skiff. And they're not leaving without more pizza. Good. Let's lock them in there. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the quid meet quo edition. You have a quid, <laughs> you have a quo, we and when they really love each other. They get a pro. So wait a minute, is the quid pro quo or is the quid anti quo? I think, we'll, wait, what do you mean? It's the quid meet quo edition. I like it. Yeah. Don't you get it? Is it pro or con? Yeah. Um, I think, well, I think things are seeming like they're very pro quid pro quo these days. <laughs> yeah, so. I, think, I think so too. <laughs> Much as the White House would like you to believe that they're con quid pro quo. <laughs> it is, Washington is being very pro on the quid pro quo. I am here in the new jungle studio. Not a skiff. Never has been. Not Never a skiff. Not a secured facility. This is definitely not a secure facility. We can barely keep sound out. I'm here with Susan Hennessy. Ben Wittes is away. Ben, where are you? Do you want to? Are you in a skiff? I I am next to the Anthony Scaramucci Study Lounge at the Harvard Law School. Get out. Seconded in. I'm I'm totally serious. That's my, actually yeah. That's my object lesson, dude. Uh, uh, the Anthony Scaramucci study lounge, which I'm next to in an empty classroom where I hope nobody will barge in on me while I'm furtively recording rational security. Oh, wow. Well, Ben's in his object at the beginning of the show. Unfortunately, you still have to sit through the whole podcast, listeners. Oh, and Tammy is away, by the way. Technical difficulties have failed us. Uh, we'd hope to have her on, but it's just going to be the three of us this week. Uh, on the podcast, the top U.S. diplomat in Ukraine delivers a devastating testimony about a quid pro quo and other things. Uh, the White House chief of staff said that the quid pro quo was real, then says it wasn't. Uh, plus, we're going to round up some of the latest in the impeachment inquiry and talk about where things go from here in this very fast-moving story. So let's start with, uh, I think, the the big, big story from Really, the past week, which was yesterday, Ambassador Bill Taylor, who is the senior U.S. diplomat in Ukraine, uh, kind of there as our – not really our ambassador, but our our next person in line because the previous ambassadors we've discussed on the podcast was recalled, gave testimony. And more importantly, I think, at least for public consumption, there's a 15-page deposition or opening statement, I should say, that he gave, which I don't know about you guys. I felt this was probably the most coherent – well-written and ultimately uh, quite damning bit of information, piece of information that has come out throughout the whole inquiry. Uh, The highlight, I think, being that he, without absolutely saying no question there was a quid pro quo, certainly describes being told by Ambassador Gordon Sundland uh, that, in fact, the aid and the meet the aid to Ukraine and a possible meeting were conditioned upon an announcement that the Ukrainians would take up the investigations uh, that the president and others in the, his orbit had been pressing for. Uh, and as I noted yesterday in some commentary on this, if that's not a quid pro quo, then what is? Ben, am I overreading this or do you think that the the Taylor testimony essentially does make clear that, yes, there was a quid pro quo in play here? I think that – I don't think you're overreading it. I think the Taylor testimony – makes clear every component of the quid pro quo 
uh, except perhaps the idea that the con- the clear conditionality was clearly communicated to the Ukrainians. Uh, that said, I don't think that's an important distinction, honestly. And what the testimony makes very clear is that it was not just a White House meeting that was conditioned on investigations. And by investigations, he makes clear that we're talking about Burisma, which is to say the Bidens, as well as this kooky server theory with respect to the 2016 election. It was not just that that was conditioned, uh, White House meetings that was conditioned on investigations. It was also the aid itself that he was appalled by this as he realized it, and that he kind of learned gradually that this was the ambition of this uh, alternative foreign policy apparatus that was running through Rudy Giuliani instead of through normal State Department channels. And I think he is, you know, the testimony uh, is buttressed by a series of apparently contemporaneous notes that he took along the way and memos to file. It seems to me uh, remarkably credible. And I uh, don't understand how it is not, uh, with a few little odds and ends associated with it, dispositive as to the fundamental integrity of what the whistleblower alleged in the first instance. And so I think it's very damning. And I think the only real remaining question is how many Republicans don't care. Susan, what do you think? I think that's accurate. Um, I think that this is, you know, look, a little, it's a it's a very lucid, very credible recitation of, I think, a lot of facts we already know. Um, that said, it is the clearest statement yet of the actual conditionality and that everybody knew exactly what was going on at the time and that they talked about it and that they documented it. Um, and, and one of the things that I think is really interesting about this statement is not just that he's naming names and saying, here's who else you might want to talk to who was in the room, but I re- here's the memos that were written. Here's emails that were sent. Here's documents, right? So but, but clearly there is a lot there for Congress to potentially try to get its hands on. You know, it's also clear how alarmed Taylor is about how harmful this is to U.S.-Ukrainian interests, how harmful this is to U.S. national security, that they convened multiple interagency meetings about the security assistance. And he makes a point of saying it was the unanimous conclusion of each of those meetings that this security assistance needed to be released, that it was in our vital national interest to do so, that this alternative policy that he describes being conducted by Rudy Giuliani Kurt Volker and Gordon Sondland was not just secondary or sort of running parallel to, it was actively at odds with U.S. policy, actively undermining U.S. policy. He talks a lot about how upset the Ukrainians are, what a terrible position this is putting them in, that Ukraine is at a critical moment of its own development, a moment in which it is either going to sort of assume its place as a full-fledged democracy or backslide into corruption. And so the idea that the United States would be actively harming it in that moment, you can tell how you know, sort of angry and upset and frustrated, uh, you know, that that Bill Taylor is. Um, you know, again, you know, we we talked about this before. Um, I, I think it's pretty astonishing that Taylor technically still works for the United States government. Right. He did not quit. He is going essentially over the objections of the State Department. Was subpoenaed, but you're right, over the objections. Exactly. And, and is now over the State Department's objections, laying out a very precise timeline, not just of what occurred, but when exactly he learned. Right. So he says, as of I didn't know until September 1st, I right. He lays out that we, we found out the security assistance was being held up, that there were these odd requests, evidence of the second channel. September 1st in this phone call is when he learns for the first time of the explicit conditionality. And that kind of timeline, it, you know, it really is going to be immensely valuable mm-hmm. for for congressional investigators when they decide, OK, where do we go from here? Because sort of to Ben's point. I think there is this question of 
do they have enough, right? How much longer do you continue to investigate whenever you have facts that are this clear and this dispositive already on the record? And I think, you know, to the point about, too, laying out that what was at stake for U.S.-Ukraine interests, that struck me as well because that's actually something, you know, it seems kind of obvious, but it hasn't been particularly, I think, framed very forcefully the way that he did it in his testimony. And he really talks about this uh, in terms of, uh, you know, the U.S. and Ukraine being a strategic partner and essentially there being kind of two paths forward, right? First, if Ukraine succeeds, he says, in breaking free of Russian influence, it's possible for Europe to be whole, free, and democratic and at peace. In contrast, if Russia dominates Ukraine, Russia will again become an empire, oppressing its people and threatening its neighbors and the rest of the world. That seems really important to me. Ben, as well, if you're talking about trying for Democrats to be talking about trying to make a case to independents and Republicans probably as well as to why this mattered. This isn't just about you know bureaucratic machinations and Congress's ability to you know see aid that it has appropriated dispensed, which are both very important things. This is a big geopolitical strategic interest that he is laying out here, in which he's saying essentially, look, there's like. Us and our allies, and there's these bad guys at their door, and we are abandoning them in the face of these people who are trying to dominate their country as well as the rest of Europe. Yeah, and that, you know, did not used to be something you needed to remind members of Congress. Right. That, you know, the U.S. has strategic interests, and one of those strategic interests is limiting the uh, capacity of the Russian Federation or before it, the Soviet Union to dominate Eastern Europe, right? That used to be a matter of pretty broad political consensus among American uh, political elites, I I suppose, except the sort of far left. And, you know, the idea that a sort of career diplomat would have to go into, you know, Congress and sort of say, I became concerned that the president of the United States didn't share this vision of America's strategic interests uh, is actually itself a pretty shocking thing. I also thought, Susan and Tammy and I talked about this actually earlier, and she would say this if she were on the podcast, this irregular channel, as he describes it, which I think is also a very effective framing, saying the regular channel and the irregular channel. Where is Mike Pompeo in all of this, right? I mean, you're talking here about a Making process. fudge. <laughs> and he's very glad that he His gave you that fudge recipe. recipe. And everyone else, thanks, Ben. It's a deep cut. Yeah, just never going to let him forget that one. Uh, go check that one out if you don't know what we're talking about. But uh, the so these are ostensibly uh, State Department employees. These are people that are under Mike Pompeo's purview. There's a whole irregular channel running that John Bolton actually emerges in this as somebody who doesn't appear to know what's going on. John Bolton, by the way, is also the person who tells uh, Ambassador Taylor, take your concerns and put them in writing in a cable to the Secretary of State, John Bolton, bureaucratic ninja, at work getting this thing put into the record. Um, I think it's it's beginning to strain belief that Mike Pompeo would not know what was going on here, given his proximity to the president and given the way he's answered some of these questions when posed about them. Um, It seems obvious to me, Susan, that Bolton is going to have to come up and testify at some point, uh, which leaves the question of whether Mike Pompeo sort of comes in maybe as the final witness to this. I mean, there's an interagency that is going on here that looks nothing – that is not even an interagency. It's this irregular channel is happening apparently right under his nose. Yeah, I mean, look, this the idea that Mike Pompeo doesn't understand exactly what's going on here, I I think, is just implausible at this point. One of the really interesting pieces of um, Bill Taylor's written statement is that he makes clear that Pompeo came to him asking him to take this job, that he had serious reservations about it, that he essentially said, I'm going to do it. You know, but I want assurances that what happened to Yovanovitch isn't going to happen to me. And he gets it in writing, like with a letter from the president talking about the policy support that he'll have. Exactly. So you can see how concerned Taylor was from the outset, which is one thing that's sort of interesting that, you know, Pompeo certainly should have already had an inkling that there was some real funny business going on with respect to Ukrainian policy. And yet they put Bill Taylor in this job, which I I think is actually, um, you know, sort of an an interesting decision and, and 
would appear to be one that's motivated by, you know, wanting to keep sort of the the ship uh, on course in terms of U.S.-Ukraine policy. You know, but look, uh, Taylor says that Bolton recommended he send a first-person cable to Secretary Pompeo. Quote, I wrote and transmitted such a cable on August 29th describing the folly I saw in withholding military aid to Ukraine at a time when hostilities were still active in the East. Now, keep in mind, Mike Pompeo is the person who was on that phone call with Zelensky, who has since given interviews after that white whistleblower complaint came out before people knew he was on the calls when he basically said, ah, shucks, I don't know anything about what you're talking about here. You're surprising me with this news that there were concerns. I mean, th- this there is a clear, clear record here that people were informing Mike Pompeo in writing of what they were concerned about. Now, whether or not – I do think John Bolton will ultimately come to testify. I just think it's inconceivable that he won't. And um, I, it's inconceivable that he doesn't want to at this point. Um, sort of astonishing that this would be a story in which John Bolton is essentially one of the good guys. But here we are. Um, I, I do think it's probably – On one hand, it's less likely that Mike Pompeo would agree to talk to Congress. On the other hand, he's the sitting secretary of state. And Congress's sort of sticks to get the sitting secretary of state to come and give testimony when they want him to are pretty big. Things like appropriations powers, authorizations. Mike Pompeo needs Congress to go along with just the basic day-to-day functions of his agency. And so... On one hand, he's not going to want to come in and play ball in the way Bill Taylor or Fiona Hill might sort of feel perfectly comfortable giving that testimony. On the other hand, his ability to just outright stonewall the first time Congress gets Mike Pompeo in a room to testify, every single Democrat in that room is going to be hammering him about this stuff under oath. And so whether it's the, you know, directly compelled by the House, House impeachment inquiry or just the first time there's an ordinary oversight hearing for the State Department, that day is coming. And, and I predict it will be an extraordinarily ugly one for Mike Pompeo. Ben, do you think that practically speaking, Pompeo can resist the demands of Congress to have him come testify? I mean, he can always say no, but it seems that for him not to come up and defend the administration here it wouldn't quite be like an admission of guilt, but it would sure seem like they were hiding something awfully big. Yeah, I think in the short term, of course, he can say no and refuse. And in the longer term, I agree with Susan that the Secretary of State cannot avoid Congress forever. Um, although he can certainly try and he can kind of wait it out and be running for Senate by the time they get around to sort of figuring out if and how they can force him to do it. And he might not be a government employee anymore. Right. And, uh, you know, I think to me, the more interesting question is Bolton, right? Because Bolton is somebody who seems to follow the earlier articulated Wittes rule, which is, uh, you know, if you want people to honor your executive privilege claims, it's probably best not to shit on them in public. You know, the president, you know, has made uh, made sport of John Bolton, and this is John Bolton's chance to uh, having, as Susan rightly points out, encourage the creation of these records in bureaucratic ninja style. This is his chance to walk an impeachment committee through the record as he understands it. And I think that may prove irresistible to him, uh, notwithstanding the almost certain executive privilege assertions over over that would attempt to keep him from doing that. And there's no real way the White House can stop him uh, just as they couldn't stop Fiona Hill if, if in fact, that's what he wants to do. I, I mean, the irony here and like the, the beautiful karma of the situation is, of course, there are hours of uh, videotape of Mike Pompeo as a sitting Republican congressman talking about how absolutely outrageous it would be for the Secretary of State to not produce documents to a congressional committee, uh, in that case, the uh, the Special Select Committee on Benghazi, how absolutely appalling it would be for a Secretary of State to disclaim knowledge of what was going on lower in the agency, because ultimately, those people work for the Secretary of State, right? And so, 
I, you know, to the extent that this is going to become the moment of reckoning for Mike Pompeo, um, somebody who appears to have aspirations of some kind of future political career, the unbelievable hypocrisy of the way Pompeo behaved with respect to the Benghazi hearings and, and Secretary of, then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton and the way he is acting now could not be starker, could not be more hypocritical, could not be clearer to voters, and, and could not be better made for sound bites. Because Mike Pompeo didn't just say Hillary Clinton should come and testify. He was smug and sanctimonious and outraged and thumped the Constitution about it. And so Which is to say he behaved like it was Tuesday. <laughs> I, I did like though that you know that there was um, I think I saw recent reporting I'm not sure if it was I think it was in the Washington Post chain about how he was feeling frustrated and victimized which like smug and sanctimonious and frustrated and victimized are actually sort of the only two settings we've ever seen from Mike Pompeo. I do want to say in partial possible defense of Mike Pompeo that you know it is possible that this was a kind of you know, track that he was not aware of in a serious way. And, uh, you know, that the stuff that was going on in the department was going on beneath him and that the stuff that was going on outside the department, of course, through Rudy Giuliani was going on through Rudy Giuliani. And so I do think we should, you know, like hold out the possibility that the reason he actually plays such a vanishingly small role in uh, Taylor's account is that he actually doesn't play a large role in these events. Yeah, although how do you square that with the fact that Mike Pompeo is a reasonably intelligent human being with eyes and ears, and there is now an established record of lots of individuals inside and outside the State Department expressing concern. There are specific uh, specific cables written to him, and also that Rudy Giuliani is going on national television and talking about his plot from sort of June of that year, for months he'd been doing that. Well, you may have just answered your own question there too, which, I mean, remember when he was asked, Pompeo, I think he was asked on one of the Sunday shows, did you read this document of stuff that Rudy sent over, you know, with these conspiracy theories about Ukraine and whatnot? And I think his answer was no. <laughs> so it's possible that because he is a smart man with eyes and ears, he stayed the, the heck away from it. Ben, what do you think? Yeah, it's the sort of, it's the sort of Mike Pompeo version of the – I don't read the tweets, you know, I just look at what the president does line that a lot of people are taking, right? You kind of look at the stuff you want to look at, you ignore the stuff you don't want to look at, and then you kind of don't know in a, uh, except in this ambient sense that, of course, somebody in your position uh, either knew or should have known. Well, let's talk, let's transition now and talk about somebody who has also become quite key in this, um, who very proudly said, yes, I did know. I knew all about it. Uh, Mick Mulvaney, the acting White House Chief of Staff. And also current OMB director. Is he acting OMB director or current OMB director? I think he's, he's somebody a, he's else is like acting because he's not – like he's on loan <clears throat> right now. Is he recused? Now? He's got know. two hats. One is like a real hat. One is like a dress <laughs> <Like> rehearsal <laughs> hat. <laughs> it's not the actual hat. It's a sombrero. It's a, it's a sombrero and actually it's supposed I to prefer, be a fedora. I prefer acting, Shane. It gives me more flexibility. <laughs> yeah, right. And it, and it leaves your uh, future options so much more in question. Um, so Mulvaney, yeah. of course, came out with this uh, just a stem winder of a press conference last week uh, in which he – I think we all have eyes and ears and we can listen to what he said – uh, when he was asked if, in fact, there was a quid pro quo uh, involving Ukraine, and he acknowledged that's something that we do all the time. Now, he seemed to be trying to, I think, hive off a quid pro quo involving us wanting – or the Trump administration wanting Ukraine to investigate the server issue and Ukraine's alleged uh, involvement in the 2016 elections separately, which I think he was trying to say is fine, separate from – 
uh, a demand that they investigate Joe Biden's son and Burisma, um, although it was kind of hard to tell because then he came out later that day and tried to disclaim everything he had just said. And then he went on Fox News Sunday and tried to say there were like three reasons and not two reasons. It, it was all kind of a, a jumble. But he very clearly did, uh, Ben, it seems to me, not only say, yes, there was a quid pro quo, but I think what he was trying to do, and you tell me what you your analysis is in that press conference, was essentially to say, whatever you guys think happened here, it's no different than things that happen every day in foreign policy. There's political influence in foreign policy. This is all fair. And to use his words, get over it. Right. I think that's exactly what he was trying to do. He was trying to say, to uh, you know, yeah, sure, we conditioned some things on some other things, and that's the way foreign policy works. The trouble is that the White House's position is actually that nothing was conditioned on anything. So he was first of all contradicting the essential position of the White House, which is why he then had to turn around and pretend he hadn't said what he had in fact absolutely said. But the other problem was that the condition that he was acknowledging is not remotely parallel to the condition that is in fact done every day in international affairs, which, uh, you know, deal with this issue that we care about as a nation and we will do X for you is a normal quid pro quo in foreign relations. Give uh, me personally... $10,000 and I will do this for you on behalf of the United States is not a normal interaction. And asking for uh, political dirt on your opponents is much closer to the second than it is to the first, right? And so the basic problem here was twofold. One is that he was conceding something that the White House doesn't acknowledge and that in that we should thank him because he was telling the truth. Um, but the other thing is that the th which they still don't seem to understand is that the thing that he was conceding was corruption. Yeah. So I actually think it's worth sort of taking a step back to explain what OMB's role is supposed to be in all of this and why hearing the White House chief of staff, who's also the acting or once in future OMB director or whatever the hell Mulvaney is, um, why what he's saying about we are allowed to use politics here, even taken on its face, is actually deeply irregular and a sign of some serious problems. Um, so the money we're talking about here is authorized and appropriated by Congress. This is a an important power designated to the legislative branch of government. Once Congress passes these these authorizations and appropriations. So in this case, some of this funding came from the uh, the NDAA, for example. Sometimes they do some a, a sort of additional rules, right? They say this funding will be released upon certifications, right? So DOD has to provide certifications. In some cases, the intelligence community has to do certifications or the State Department. This money then goes to OMB. Once all of these certifications are done, once C Congress has said, we want you to spend the money in this way. And OMB's job is to allocate the money, right? It's not allowed to, to spend it on something else or to not spend it, right? Its job is to take the money that Congress said, executive branch, we're telling you to spend this money in this way, and to allocate it out and to actually like send the checks, essentially, and, and, and move all of the papers. Now, OMB has some uh, discretion within that. So there are some limited reasons why OMB is allowed to not spend money in precisely the way Congress told it to. Um, those are limited reasons. They're reasons to provide for contingencies, to achieve savings made possible by or through changes in requirements or greater efficiency of operations, or as specifically provided by law. And to the extent that OMB is doing anything different than what Congress told them to do, OMB is supposed to go back to Congress to get permission. So what Mick Mulvaney is conceding here is that even if we believe his own statement, is that OMB and the White House withheld funding for reasons that are not permissible under the law. And so it is violating important separation of powers principles lying to Congress about it at the time, 
And that's if you actually accept at face value what he's saying. Now, we know that we shouldn't accept it at face value because it actually wasn't part of this, you know, legitimate uh, effort to to rein in corruption in Ukraine. It was for this sort of um, uh, corrupt extortionate effort. But for Mick Mulvaney to concede that these two things were linked to one another is Mick Mulvaney, who is not somebody who doesn't know what he's talking about here. OMB director Mick Mulvaney admitting we withheld funds for this purpose. Let's go back to the statutory list. That purpose does not fall within the reasons why you're allowed to do it. And oh, by the way, not only did you not go back to Congress to say you wanted to reapportion these funds, you actively lied to Congress about why exactly this was happening. And so, you know, it's it feels boring and sort of in the weeds to care about things like that in light of the sort of astonishing overall scandal and corruption that we're seeing. But I, I actually think it is like a really significant admission on Mulvaney's part that the White House was engaged in serious wrongdoing. There's also something else that I think that he seems to not directly acknowledge, but something that he said that he tried to portray as innocent that I think actually is, is quite an indictment. So in his efforts, as I was describing them earlier, to try and say, yeah, there was a quid pro quo involving the military aid and a promise to investigate whether the CrowdStrike server is in Ukraine in 2016 election interference. Okay, two things on that. One, he tried to justify that, it seemed to me, by tying that to a Justice Department quote-unquote investigation. And I put that in air quotes because what he's talking about there is Bill Barr and John Durham's review of the origins of the Russia probe, which some reports have indicated may look into what Ukraine may have done. And by the way, that is a completely baseless theory uh, at this point. There's no evidence for it yet. The Justice Department then came out and said, look, and publicly and quite forcefully pushed back, if, if the White House has conditioned aid based on some investigation we're doing, that is news to us. That was significant. But second, I think maybe sort of the broader political point is to try and say that investigating the CrowdStrike server and 2016 supposed election interference by Ukraine is not a political investigation. That is a political investigation because the whole point of that effort – is and has been for years now by people who have been trying to both discredit the Trump-Russia investigation and who've been pursuing this idea of a hidden server is to gin up information that deflects from what actually happened, which is that Russia interfered in our election, and try to say that, no, no, it was the Ukrainians working with the Democrats. So the evidence that would be ginned up in such an investigation would be deployed by the president and his allies for political benefit. And trying to hide that under this sort of kind of gossamer cloak, I think, of Bill Barr and John Durham's investigation just didn't strike me as plausible. So I think this is a really point, a really important point and a little bit of an overlooked thing from Bill Taylor's testimony in which he says that on August 16th, the Ukrainians requested that the United States submit an official request for an, in, for an investigation into Burisma's alleged violations of Ukrainian law. So that's the, the Hunter Biden company. Um, you know, one part being, I think you're right, the, the, the sort of attempts to discredit the intelligence community findings in Russia, which are political. Also, this Burisma investigation, I think the more overtly or more plainly uh, political investigation, um, and that the Ukrainians were saying, um, can you guys give us a formal request from the United States? To, like, right, you're, you're telling us to do this. Why don't you give us something to hang our hat on? Um, and Taylor's saying that he says, quote, a formal U.S. request to the Ukrainians to conduct an investigation based on violations of their own law struck me as improper. And I recommended to Ambassador Volker that we, quote, stay clear. Right. And so this is, I think, once again, pretty clear evidence that this was not DOJ operating in in a regular, ordinary fashion. This is not normal law enforcement cooperation. The Ukrainians recognize that. And whenever they sort of said, hey, can we force this back through ordinary channels, whether it's the DNC thing, whether it's the Biden thing, right, give us something official that we can start to use here. U.S. officials were saying we can't do that. So I think Taylor's testimony demonstrates, one, there was no official request or coming through formal channels. And two, everybody understood that the fact that this wasn't going through informal channels is evidence of how improper it was, that this really was based on the president's pet conspiracy theories and 
the only thing President Trump ever cares about is his personal financial interests and his personal political interests. And so and anything that is that Trump is driving that is not occurring in the ordinary process, you know, at, at some point, I think you we have to recognize as presumptively political. That's the reason why he wanted this stuff. Ben, I want to ask you about something else as well that <clears throat> Nick Mulvaney talked about in that press conference which was ostensibly the reason for the press conference. And it might not immediately seem like it's connected to the impeachment proceedings, but I think it ultimately proved that maybe politically it was, which was this announcement that the G7 conference was going to be held at Doral, uh, the Doral Golf Club that the president owns uh, in Miami. There's been reporting on this before about why from a security perspective, that was a bad idea. It's not a, an optimal place at all for it to be. There was the obvious emoluments issue of the president apparently awarding a contract to himself. Uh, and, and it was, was, would have been money coming in from foreign governments. Talk about that if you want, obviously just on its own. But it struck me that the 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 speed with which the president retracted that in the face of pretty overwhelming opposition by both Democrats and more importantly Republicans was a signal to me that in the midst of this impeachment investigation, anything that he does, whether it be pulling troops out of Syria and leaving the Kurds to fight for themselves or letting Russia uh, and Iran and Turkey gain influence there or awarding himself a contract like this, so risks alienating and offending Republicans that you could imagine that tipping the scales in the impeachment balance here. So I think that's exactly right. Before I turn to that, though, I want to note one other feature of Mulvaney's press conference, which is that this is like the eighth time that in the face of this continuing cascade of scandals, these guys have just come out and said, yeah, we did it. So what? You know, and like the first of the, the most famous in this iteration was Rudy Giuliani saying, you know, of course I did. Uh, when he asked for a, a investigation of of Hunter Biden, um, but they have this history of just kind of you know coming out and admitting it in this kind of belligerent fashion, and I just think it's a you know interesting uh, thing in the history of scandals. You know, imagine if Richard Nixon had you know released the smoking gun tape you know, on day one saying, of course I did it, you know, um, but God that's what they do over right. and over and over again. <laughs> it's just, I was converging pop culture memes there for a second. Yeah, of course I ordered the code red. So as to the Doral thing, yes, I think it is a very significant show of weakness uh, by the president. And I do think the this is an area where his combative instincts are really not serving him well. So if you remember Bill Clinton's impeachment, you know, one of the things he did in that period was kind of circled the Democratic wagons, made sure that he had Democrats with him, and did what he had to do, including allowing them to criticize him and condemn him and suggest he should be censured for his behavior, right? He kind of gave everybody a free pass to criticize him as long as people didn't vote to convict him in the Senate and opposed impeachment in, in the House. And Trump is kind of doing the opposite, right? He's creating uh, a lot of loyalty tests and across a bunch of areas that are actually important to Republicans, he's making it hard to be on his side. So Syria is one example of this, right? But another is, you know, it, basically within a week or two weeks, he said to Republicans, not only do you have to support me and not criticize me on this Ukraine stuff, but you have to tolerate while I, you know, abandon the Kurds and, you know, sacrifice U.S. interests in Syria and uh, in the Middle East. And you have to cheer when I route money to my own golf course in South Florida in a kind of self-dealing emoluments clause, phony emoluments clause, Lollapalooza. 
you know, that's actually like a pretty hard list for people to swallow. And I think what you saw over the last couple of weeks, and I agree with you, it's not directly related to the impeachment, but it's related to the impeachment, is that he has not been able to sustain at least the latter of those positions. And Republicans have been quick to criticize him on the former position, including voting on it uh, to condemn the policy. And I do think, you know, putting people in the position when you need them to have your back, that you're kind of demanding other things from them rather than giving them other things is a tactically very foolish thing to do. And, uh, you know, I don't know whether he will pay for it in the end, but I do think uh, this is an example of a situation in which he already had to pay for it relatively quickly. But God bless Marco Rubio, who, uh, having been put in this position, decided that he didn't, as a as a Floridian, he didn't think there was anything wrong with Trump giving himself a, a, a lucrative government contract. And so um, congratulations, Marco Rubio, on, you know. It's good for following, Florida, Susan. It's good for Florida. It's good for Florida on following <laughs> Trump right off that cliff, um, you know, like, like Wiley Coyote, when all of a sudden he realizes the ground isn't underneath him anymore. Um, uh, just building on what Ben said very quickly on uh, Trump making it hard for the GOP to stick with him, just a couple of interesting tweets just in the past couple of hours. Um, Josh Krashauer over at the National Journal tweets, quote, just spoke to a GOP source close to McConnell, that's Senate leader Mitch McConnell, on the politics of impeachment. This person says, quote, this is shaping up to be a very dark moment for the Trump White House. Assessing the broader vote when it comes to a Senate trial, this GOP source said, quote, it's getting to be a harder choice for more people. Whether that's enough for senators to take decisive action, every single move has been in the wrong direction for this guy, meaning Trump. Uh, and then also uh, Senate Majority Whip John Thune, who is the number two Republican in the Senate, told reporters after Bill Taylor's testimony, quote, the picture coming out of it based on the reporting we've seen is, yeah, I would say is not a good one. <laughs> not great, guys. Not great. Um, all right, let's in this hey, last you segment. Know, that's progress. <laughs> well, it certainly is a measure of where the GOP is going, and it's and it's not necessarily in the uh, direction of uh, of a con on the quid pro quo. Maybe on that scale, bet um, hedging is the technical <laughs> term. We made very clear in the text message, no quid pro quo. No quid pro quo. Not right. this one. For the we other one, sent maybe, a text but, message about it. Um, let's just briefly in this last segment kind of wrap some of the other pieces that have been coming out that are that are notable. Um, one thing I wanted to point to is we actually had a story in the Post, uh, which I contributed to. It was written by some colleagues of mine. Uh, and the time period between the first call that President Trump has with uh, – President Zelensky in Ukraine and then the infamous July 25th call, there are interactions that he has with Vladimir Putin in the form of a phone call and a meeting that he has with the Hungarian leader, Viktor Orban, uh, that sour him on Ukraine. Uh, and now to be clear, Trump, I think, already had a pretty sour view on Ukraine going kind of historically back. But I thought it was fascinating, this notion of uh, uh, you know these other leaders trying to sort of like turn him against Ukraine in a way that, I mean, it so obviously runs counter to U.S. policy. And I think kind of goes to this question, Susan, too, of like, you know, is it is this sort of the the syndrome of the last person in the room is the one who influences him? Or is it more that these are people kind of going ahead and enabling the instincts that he already had, which was, you know, yeah, we don't want to give weapons to these guys and they're more trouble than it's worth? Yes, yeah, so I think it's the latter. I think it's the, you know, uh, come join us, come be on our team. You, Trump, want to be exactly the kind of authoritarian leader that Putin and Orban are. Uh, you, too, want to be a corrupt kleptocrat. Um, you know, come and, and so us, come, come, you know, align yourself with us, um, you know, and, and, and so not only is Trump doing Putin's bidding in, uh, you know, sort of sandbagging Ukraine, um, he's also in in a 
Putin and Orban-esque fashion, um, saying, yeah, I'm, I'm going to take off a little off the top for myself as well. You know, while I also pursue uh, policies that are contrary to U.S. national security interests, I, I'm going to get a little dirt on political opponents. I'm going to get a little, a few headlines about the DNC servers. I'm going to pursue my own interests while I'm at it, which is precisely what those people do in their own countries. And so, you know, I, I think the reason why we see Trump drawn to them again and again and, and so inviting is because fundamentally that is where his instincts lie. That is what he believes is the purpose of leadership and, and the purpose of his office is, is to serve his own interests. And and what does he care if he has to throw the Ukrainians overboard, you know, in, in order to get what he wants? And, um, it, you know, it's the most natural alliance in the world. Why wouldn't it be? Ben, there's something else I want to ask you too about something that just actually broke today. Uh, so Igor Fruman and Lev Parnas. Igor and Lev. <laughs> These are two of the best supporting characters for this story, really. I love it. Yeah, the, um, they're they're actually in the when the cartoon version of this is made, Igor and Lev are gonna be like uh, cool cartoon characters. <laughs> They're pretty good. They kind of have a caricature like, look like about them. Rocky and Bowwinkle, Igor and Lev. <laughs> it's going to be awesome. Natasha. Um, you may not have seen this, but they uh, they appeared in court today. Uh, and they're at least I think the lawyers for one of them, I believe for Fruman, uh, I may be wrong about that, uh, asserted that some material that might come out in the trial could be covered by executive privilege. Wait. But here's the theory, which is just perfect. So a lawyer for Mr. Parnas said the potential for the White House to invoke executive privilege stemmed from the fact that Mr. Parnas had used Mr. Giuliani as his own lawyer at the same time Mr. Giuliani was working as Mr. Trump's lawyer. (laughs) So it's like a contagion I have a prediction for you all, and uh, you can take this one to the bank. This assertion of executive privilege will not have legs. (laughs) In the same way that like a fish does not have legs or a snake does not have legs. I mean, look, it's kind of in the same way that if I got in trouble and I asserted executive privilege, a judge might not consider that a very serious claim. I think – this is most unlikely to have traction. It's like some kind of six degrees of separation thing. Like, well, my guy knows a guy and that guy is the president. And so therefore, privilege applies to me. I was watching Fox News while I had this conversation and Trump was also watching Fox News at the same time. And therefore, executive privilege applies. It's actually Fox News privilege. (laughs) All people who who watch Fox News at the same time as the president does have the Fox News privilege and they they can't be uh, interviewed about any of the criminal activity they might be uh, undertaking at that particular moment. Well, it, it, do, it does raise the question, I mean, presuming that the, the lawyer who is representing Mr. Parnas is an actual lawyer and not like one who plays one on TV, would be asserting something that is so on its face utterly frivolous. <laughs> um, whether or not this is, you know, something that well, my first reaction was this is pl- completely, you know, ginned up for public consumption and to try and sort of, you know, cast a, a um, I don't know what the right word is, but to try and throw up a lot of chaff here. But that strikes me as not a very smart strategy and that every time Rudy or people associated with him have gone out publicly and tried to mount defenses for what they're doing to shield the president, um, it ends up walking the president deeper into the ditch. Yeah, but this isn't about trying to defend the president. Well, they're invoking him. This is Giuliani's strategy, right? They are trying to tie themselves as closely as possible to the president of the United States. They're the only people doing that right now. Right. (laughs) This is about throwing up smoke in order to gain leverage in plea negotiations. These guys are going to plead out uh, unless they foolishly decide to hold out for a pardon. They're going to plead out. And this is kind of normal posturing in the period around such negotiations. You know, I, I think as far as Giuliani is concerned, the play is actually to attempt to align himself as closely with the president as possible because that starts to make questions about pursuing your own interests versus the interests of the United States, hoping to make it murky enough that prosecutors won't end up 
pursuing charges or or you can find some kind of defense in there. It's not – I don't think it's going to be successful um, and and Parnas and uh, Fruman have some pretty explicit campaign finance violations on their hands here. But but I think that's the play is just trying to, to be as close as the White House is humanly possible. All right, let's uh, move on here to object lessons. Ben, you've already had your object, which is the Scaramucci Lounge. Yeah, so I I just want to tell you a little bit about my object lesson. I uh, have been teaching this fall uh, a class at Harvard Law School, and uh, the study lounge right next to the classroom that I teach in, uh, I noticed the other day a plaque on the wall, which I immediately snapped a picture of and sent to Susan, that uh, it is the Anthony Scaramucci Study Lounge, and it was uh, apparently donated uh, or supported with uh, a donation from one Anthony Scaramucci, who is, in fact, a graduate of the Harvard Law School. It's the Mooch Lounge. Anthony Scaramucci it's went to Harvard Mooch Law School? the Mooch Lounge. Did he go to actual Harvard it. Law, or was it like some other kind of like... Oh, no, and he will tell you all about it, Okay, friend. all right. Um, I have an object here, uh, which is a hat tip to a colleague of mine that discovered this, which I think is just delightful. Um, This person was Googling to remind herself of the date when the White House had actually released the rough transcript of the call with President Zelensky and found that if you Google the terms Trump released transcript, you will find near the top – a link to the White House website where they posted the transcript and someone apparently in the White House helpfully labeled the PDF transcript, three exclamation points. I actually saw that too. I myself have Googled for it and noticed it. Somebody was very Here's excited. Here's your transcript. Transcript. I wonder, maybe this was, do you think maybe this was Lodestar or Anonymous who updated it? Like, transcript. Uh, Anonymous is writing a book. Anonymous so is writing a book. I guess we'll find out who it is. I, if Anonymous doesn't come out and say who he is, I'm not sure I want to read that book. I'm, I, yeah, yes, I, I don't want to read it either way. I think we should only read the parts where Anonymous identifies him or herself. Beyond that, I really don't care what the person has to say. It's going to be very hard to write a compelling book in which you might be the only person in the room and not out yourself, wouldn't you think? Yeah, who is this person? Also, like, I actually think it's a pretty, like, remarkable contrast right now of, like, after three years of leaks and anonymous op-eds and all this nonsense, the only thing that has actually made a damn bit of difference are people actually going on the record and being willing to play by the rules and file whistleblower complaints and give testimony under their, their own names. And so to every White House official that has been telling themselves that somehow they are morally absolved because, you know, they're texting every reporter they know all the, the alarming details they're seeing on the inside, this is pretty good proof that that is not doing a damn thing uh, and that the actually demonstrating the basic courage and decency to just put your name behind what you're saying is incredibly powerful. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of a powerful podcast. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can find Rational Security-themed law school study lounges at <clears throat> themoochstore.com. <laughs> you can get to all. We have many different varieties, shapes and sizes, big and small. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please make sure to leave a rating and review. It really helps us out. Our audio engineer this week was Jacob Schultz. The show is edited and produced, as always, by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Rudy Giuliani, Mick Mulvaney, and Mike Pompeo, and their new barbershop trio, The Irregulars Channel. <laughs> Good. Can't you see it? Yeah, I bet he has a nice singing voice. The Irregulars. <laughs> They'll all be singing eventually, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> Sophia Yang could make it a quartet, but I think she has other things to do. She was like off on an aircraft carrier this week. Did you guys see that? I didn't. She was reporting from an aircraft carrier. Just badass. On behalf of my good friends Ben Wittis and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris, and we will talk to you next week. Bye-bye.